Hello. Hey. Okay. So, welcome back. Today we are starting a Halloween themed group of episodes. Every Friday I'll be putting out a new Halloween episode and the first one is really special because it's about one of my favorite movies of all time, Psycho. And today I have one of my closest friends and current filmmaker, Tyler the Pink Train T Pain. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm super excited <laughs> to be on the to be on the cast. Yeah, I'm really happy you're here. <laughs> <laughs> So, for those of you who don't know, Psycho is a 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film, which is based on a novel, and it stars Janet Leigh as Marion Crane, John Galvin as Sam Lewis, and Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. The general idea of the movie is that you follow Marion on the run after stealing $40,000 from her boss to run away and become married to her boyfriend, who is Sam Lewis, Sean Gavin, and experiences difficulty in a storm. Marion stops at a night shack called the Bates Motel. The motel is managed by a well-mannered and high-strung woman Bates, and when Marion is in the shower, she is unexpectedly met with Mrs. Bates and her knife. In the end of the film, we catch Norman masquerading as his mother with the knife that kills two victims and in interrogation, they figure out that Norman has a split personality and a battle for identities as he trans- Falls himself into his mother. So I'm gonna start with Tyler, and you can go and tell everyone why you chose this film and why you like this film so much. Okay, well, as Christian was just saying, Psycho is you know one of the most iconic horror movies <laughs> in like horror movie history. You know. Everyone's seen it, you know, everyone knows the iconic shower scene and all that. And it's funny because it's actually one of my dad's um, favorite movies, you know, came out like around the, well, it was a little bit before he was born, but, you know, when he got old enough, he went to go see it. And um, then actually over the summer just passed, um, we sat down and watched it together and I absolutely loved it. So, you know, I think, I think one of the things that like made it so shocking you know and so unlike anything else at the time was that it has that famous uh like switch up in the middle of the story you know like for the first yeah. half we're following Marilyn or Marin, M- marion <laughs> and then and then right in the middle she just gets killed and then it's like wait what you know like completely switches yeah. to her sister and the boyfriend trying to like solve the murder and mm-hmm. especially in 1960 you know that must have been like crazy to witness that in the theater for the first time yeah, and I think that was one of the first films where, like, a main character was kind of killed off before the end of the movie. 
and then you see that repeated in movies like Scream and Halloween and many other films where you have one of the main characters die off earlier than expected. So mm-hmm. I feel like this movie kind of was a pioneer for that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like, even to this day, you know, horror movies are still paying homage or or learning and using the techniques that Hitchcock used in Psycho. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of techniques, I know that you are studying film right now. That is correct. What are some of the techniques that you saw in the film that you feel are interesting to have the audience know about? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I actually think is a more underrated aspect about this movie in particular, you know, because it's black and white, I feel like people kind of overlook the um, the lighting, the use of lighting a lot. Um, mm. You know, people love to talk about lighting and color and stuff like that in modern film, but, you know, it was just as essential, if not even more, um, in the black and white era. And so one thing that is really interesting about the lighting in this movie is uh, we were just talking about how it almost is like a, a two-part story. You know, we have that first part, the murder in the middle, yeah. and then the second part. Mm-hmm. So um, when we start the film uh, with Marion and her boyfriend in the room, it's set in the middle of the day, sunny, very open lighting. Everything's bright and, we, you know, nicely lit. We can see everything. And I think this kind of symbolizes, like, and shows us an idea of safety, you know. Um, we're not in the dark yet. Everything's out in the open. We're, like you know, just an average day. But then when Marion takes the money and she, you know, gets in her car and drives away and eventually she stumbles upon the Bates Motel at night, now we're in the darkness. Now the shadow is like creeping up and we get that sense of unease, you know? When she gets in the motel, the lighting is much more, it's much darker. It's much more dramatic. And we start to get a sense of something's not right here, you know? This is kind of giving me the creeps. And then it all culminates when she finally gets murdered in the bathroom. Yeah, and fun fact, that scene in the bathroom was originally intended to have no music in the background, and was intended to have the scene, no background noise, no music, but once the score was written for the film, Hitchcock heard the score and felt like he needed to have that uh, part of that scene. And so the score is called The Murder, which is composed by Bernard Herman. And it's probably one of the most recognizable movie scores of all time. Oh, yeah. You, know, you, have, you have the score by John Carpenter for Halloween. And you have many other movie scores like Jurassic Park and all these other iconic scores but when you think movie scores and particularly a horror movie I'm sure everyone thinks of Psycho and this score is so come unquote iconic that it's been sampled in many other songs especially pop and hip hop songs like Give me, give some more by Buster Lines and Haunted by Taylor Smith. The score wants to resemble a stabbing motion. 
which is why it's composed of many lungs, trails, and short, sick cardinal notes at, at the gato. And the notes could be stretched from an F, F sharp, C sharp, and a D with an occasional G. And the way they play, it kind of gives that aura of suspense and danger. Kind of like how you score John Williams make us all in the beginning scene. You feel that sense of danger and suspense and oh no, what's going to happen. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the score is absolutely so essential to that that tension and that like fear, you know, that we feel. And it's interesting because um, the composer for this film, Bernard Herrmann, um, he's done a number of film and television like he did some stuff for the twilight zone i know um he worked on citizen yeah. kane um and he even scored um one of my film one of the films that has one of my favorite soundtracks um taxi driver and even despite all those like long lists of credits um you know the the original psycho theme like you said is still probably one of the most iconic pieces of music and cinema history like definitely his most iconic you know composition they ever made Right up there with the Jaws theme, you know, when it comes to like mm-hmm. how it just gets under your skin and it's just so unforgettable. Yeah, and like lighting, I think the score of films is a very underrated part of film because you sure. don't realize how important the score is to the film until you watch the scene or you watch part of the movie without the score and then you realize just how important it is to have that music behind whatever things playing out yeah definitely definitely i think i think people often in general underrate the use of audio um when it comes to filmmaking you know people think about it as a visual thing but it is it is very much an audio and a visual kind of art form Mm -hmm. i feel yeah, I think without the music, it, it's kind of like a hand-in-hand thing where you can have amazing lighting and amazing film shots, but without the score, it kind of takes part of that vibe, part of the audience's experience away. So I think that yeah, people really can look into scores more and realize just how big a part of the film it is compared to the actors or costumes and just how important it is in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean the the art of the soundtrack going a bit off topic here is really like evolved so much. You know, like there's so many different styles and so many different ways like music can be used. You know, like you were saying, yeah. he, he composed it with the idea of that stabbing motion in mind. You know, there's always like that intent of having the music bring out the visuals and like enhance the story and everything in its own way, like specific to each film. So that's definitely done yeah, very well with Psycho. Oh, yeah. And it's very interesting to see how soundtracks change over time where you have more orchestral soundtracks or like earlier films like Psycho and Jurassic Park or E.T. Mm-hmm. And then 
in modern day, a lot of fictional tracks include more pop radio hits that are more geared toward marketing and promotion. So I think that's a very interesting change in how soundtracks are utilized for movies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in modern film, there are still some uh, really innovative soundtracks being out there. You know, I think um, a good example is uh, Drive from 2011. That was a really good one. Um, Good Time from 2017 had a great soundtrack. Um, So, yeah, people are still finding ways to, like, use music in in new and creative ways to uh, enhance their films. Yeah. So, in the film, there are a lot of different aspects that kind of give audiences more so of a hint to what's going on Mm -hmm. in the plot. Like, for example... Um, Norman is a person who likes taxidermy, so you see a lot of taxidermy on him, especially in Owl, and like how, I know you talked about this with me earlier, but, um, Owl, you said, are birds of prey, and so this kind of sets up and foreshadows Norman's role in the film. Is there anything else you want to add to that or, like, kind of analyze how that plays out throughout the film? Yeah, I think along with lighting, something that kind of goes under a lot of people's noses, you know, the first time you watch a film is the production design, you know? Like, you were talking about the birds in Norman's room, like, stuff like that, the props and the the set dressing and even the locations used, all that comes together to like help create the mood you're trying to create and in like a suspenseful kind of horror film, you want that sense of like anxiety and like an ease, you know? So when we get to yeah. the base motel and we see all those birds on the wall, you know, we are kind of creeped out by that. Cause like, well, you know, it's a harmless hobby, but it is a little strange for someone to like have a bunch of stuffed dead animals around their, <laughs> around their motel. Yeah. And yeah, there is, you mentioned that one great shot with Norman, um, that has the owl kind of mid-motion swooping down on its prey in the background, and that's that great foreshadowing. It's it's very interesting with Norman. Um, it's like we're kind of led to believe he's innocent, but then there are like those subtle hints that he's not what he seems on the surface at first. So, yeah, yeah and that was just a great, yeah. really subtle way of showing that. Mm-hmm. Talking about several hints about characters um with Marion in the opening scene we see her in a white bra and then later on we see her in a color black which if you analyze that and you look at what um critics say that is a symbol of her losing her innocence after stealing the money and running away. I think that that was a really nice way of resembling that through her character. And I think that was a really cool use of wardrobe to show change and transition throughout the film. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was definitely something I wanted to touch on as well. Yeah, 
the director really tends to be involved in kind of all areas of the film and even down to stuff like costume design, you know, and even though this film is in black and white, that kind of color symbolism that you were touching on, that's still really important. Um, and that still is like another subtle way of kind of the, the way the filmmaker can communicate. This is what I'm trying to say. This is my idea, you know, that I'm presenting to the audience and all these yeah. little elements build up, you know, and kind of build on top of each other. And it's interesting too, because Norman also, um, his, the color of his wardrobe tends to play into that a bit. I, I believe yeah. um, in the scene where Lila and Sam come to the hotel for the first time, he's wearing white, I'm pretty sure. And that is kind of um, a symbol of how we're still unsure about his innocence, you know, because white is associated mm -hmm. with, right, like with Marion too, it was the symbol of that innocence. And, you know, the audience yeah. and also the characters aren't 100% sure of the killer's identity yet at this point in the film. And Norman is still putting on this act of, you know, being a sweet, you know, little motel owner and the white shirt he's wearing, you know, just further adds to the confusion the audience is feeling like, is it him? Is it not him? You know, so it's just another really great tool that Hitchcock uses. Yeah. And with the film that you said, being in black and white, I think that was a really cool way to use color, even though it is a black and white film. Definitely. We still have the uses of color, regardless of whether or not the film itself will be portrayed in color. Yeah, absolutely. If I could even go a bit film nerd for a second here, just a quick little tangent. Um, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think, you know, black and white in general, like I was saying, I touched on a bit earlier, and you just said there, I, I do think people really kind of underestimate what you can still do with color and lighting and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And one example, yeah. more specific to lighting, um, a film from, I believe it was 1950, um, a Japanese film called Rashomon um, has really cool use of lighting because it's basically, the story is about a, um, a, a murder took place and they bring four people um, into court to hear their opinion on what happened. You know, these four witnesses and each person has a different version of the story. And then when we see the flashbacks of each person recounting their story, there's a lot of shots of like the sun peeking through the leaves of trees, you know? So like, it's like that dappled kind of light that's shining on the characters. And it's almost like the leaves covering up the sun are kind of like representative of how nobody is like able to find the truth. Like everybody has their own version of the story, you know? So there's like really subtle things with light and again, like color and we see in Psycho, stuff you can do with those kind of things that you know you don't even think of the first time you watch a movie but then you go back and like oh that's so cool you know like it really adds to this idea yeah so being a film creator yourself you know how hard it is not only to produce a screenplay but to actually produce the shots themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> and if, if we look at the shower scene, for people who don't know, that scene has over 77 different camera angles and over 40 cuts. So, from a film perspective, can you kind of describe how uh, hard that would be or how 
innovative that is for a film to do. Absolutely. Yeah, so the shower scene, you know, is the most iconic scene from Psycho. And it's probably one of the most studied scenes by filmmakers in all of history. You know, people still study it to this day. And absolutely, like you said, Mm -hmm. the the editing with all those quick cuts, that was definitely very um, innovative for a film in the 1960s. Um, You know, in basic terms, when you want to have a really like chaotic, tense moment, you tend to go for quicker cuts, you know, really snappy editing. Like if you look at the action scenes in like a Marvel movie, right? Like all the cuts are like just a few seconds, Mm -hmm. like boom, 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 boom. Because it really keeps like, it keeps it fast paced. It keeps the tension high. So Mm -hmm. yeah, what Hitchcock does is when Norman enters with the knife and he starts stabbing Marion, you know, like it's, it's cut, 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 cut. You know, you got her screaming, the sounds of the knife, the score, like we talked about is going blaring in the background, you know, all these fast cuts. It's like super, these loud sounds and all these quick visual transitions, like, create that sense of chaos and like shock it like hits us all at once and also the very quick editing pace makes it very difficult for us to have a consistent perspective so we're unable to really make out what's going on you know we can't tell who the identity of the killer is all we know is that (laughs) there's a woman and she's getting stabbed and it really it kind of (laughs) it's like probably what it felt like to be in her shoes in that moment you know like just (laughs) Yeah, it's a very great scene, mm-hmm. and I love how you go from one second from Mary's perspective, and then not even point five or a second later, you see the killer's point of view, and you see then like basically like with the hand, you use that up and down motion, and I think. It was a very great way to produce a kill without giving too much. Absolutely. It, it wants you to keep watching the film and want to find out more and more. Kind of like, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs that just keeps you coming. Definitely. And I like how a lot of the scenes when Norman is dressed up as a mother, you get the sense of uneasiness, not just through the score, like we said earlier, but a lot of the surroundings in the set help add to that uneasiness. Again, with the shower scene, it's very uneasy. And then when Lila enters the basement, and the lighting super dark, and you just feel the sense of don't go down there. <laughs> right. Horror movie. If you're a character I in a horror movie, never that. go in the basement. That's the number one mistake. Yeah. Horror movie on the line. Never go somewhere exactly. alone. <laughs> but yeah, I just love the way that his cop always figures out how to set up that tone of the film using the lighting and the stats and how each part feels different than the rest of Mm -hmm. the film. Yeah, and of course the editing too and the shot composition and all that, like it it all you know, even the acting, you know that's um, more so in the actors and actresses' hands than Hitchcock's but like the director still works closely with them to get that performance 
that they want. And yeah, like that basement scene at the very end, you know, the first time we see Norman in his mom outfit, you know, like I remember when I watched that, I was just like, what the, you know, like I was just on the edge of my seat, just like, yeah, it like hits you, you know, all those elements come together and you see him and it's just like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a film for people who are still listening and haven't watched the movie to take time to watch. Unfortunately, we we but, have kind of um, spoiled a little bit of it, but I think even despite that, um, <laughs> you definitely get a lot of enjoyment out of it because it's just so well made. It's a great watch, and when you compare it to like a modern horror. The cliche horror movies, like the slasher films, it's very at the core, the beginning of that kind of genre and that type of stereotype of a film. And you really see where some of your favorite modern films took their inspiration from or where the base of that film came from. I kind of like to consider Psycho the godfather of porn, just in the sense that when we have Psycho, very shortly after that we have Halloween and Mm -hmm. Scream and all these films we know very well because of the household names. So, yeah. Yeah, and if you want to talk about Psycho being a pioneer, it definitely did kind of usher in that slasher genre. You know, again, like that that scene in the shower, like it was just so unlike anything people had seen, you know, and like the, the knife and everything, it just created this iconic imagery that yeah. like kind of formed a whole new genre, really. And with um mm-hmm. with Halloween in particular, like if you really want to see the impact and like influence that Hitchcock had even many years after Psycho came out, um, Halloween, I think, is a great example. That that film was released almost two decades, I think, after, or maybe it was it was either nineteen the early nineteen seventies or the later nineteen seventies, but still many years after Psycho came out. And yeah. it's interesting because number one, Michael Myers as a character is kind of similar to Norman Bates because he has that whole thing with like a an an unhealthy relationship to his family. You know, Norman has the thing with his mother. And then in, yeah. in the very first scene of Halloween, spoilers, if you haven't seen that, I mean, if you haven't seen the original Halloween, like, what are you doing? But spoiler warning, in the very first yeah. scene, <laughs> it's that POV, we follow Michael as a kid, and he kills his sister, you know, so like, there's that element of the, the troubled upbringing and the tension with the family. And then also, all the victims that Michael kills later in the film are like all sexually active teenagers, which is very interesting, because in Psycho... Yeah that's kind of the thing with Marion too. Like first scene, she just finished like being in bed with her boyfriend. And then it's almost like it's set up so that her death by Norman's hands is kind of like a punishment quote unquote for like her sins of that and also stealing the money. So there is that kind of connection to Halloween too. Mm -hmm. And um, speaking of, we keep bringing up the iconic shower scene. And part of the reason why it is so iconic is because Hitchcock 
Wong did not have early previews of the film, and two, he did not want anybody watching in late. So if you want to see the movie, have to be there in line, on time. No one can leave early, come in early. He wanted to keep the secret of the twist of the film a secret. So as the film was released, that's when critics were able to first see it and first give the review. So I think that played a lot into the promotion and just it helped the scene become more of what it is today. Absolutely. And the idea that like he held back the premiere and like didn't let critics see it before the audience is so crazy because like um in a film such as this where that not only the the murder in the middle, but also like the final reveal of Norman's identity at the end. You know, it's it's so cool that that hit everyone at the same time, you know, like critics were seeing it just as audiences were, you know, mm-hmm. and it just, I feel like in a case where this is, um, this film is like so centered around that big reveal, I think that was a really interesting decision and also the right decision. Yeah, and I don't know if there are many films that have that now, but personally, I haven't really seen such a big film like Psycho do anything like that quite recently. So I think that that's a very cool thing to think about when you see a, a big film. Like, um, one of the biggest films from the past like two years is the Avengers. <laughs> That's literally what well, we were talking about spoilers. That was the first thing I thought of Infinity War, like that whole thing. Yeah, but um, it, w- it would be really cool to have seen Marvel and Disney do something like what Hitchcock did for this film, considering how big of a film it was for the time period and it's just really interesting to see how many quote-unquote blockbuster films are getting released that have really big plot points but haven't referred back to that idea of I'm not gonna have any prior release prior viewings of this film which I think really adds to the whole don't spoil the movie kind of culture. And although it's kind of funny to think about, I think it'd be really cool to have such a big movie come out in the future where it has major points that could get spoiled, but don't because there are no early releases or early viewings, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, just imagine if, like, Twitter, you know, was around back when <laughs> back when Psycho came out, you know, like, like, the whole thing, the whole, the, amount of- the whole um, jokes people were making with Spider-Man, like, Mr. Stark, I don't want to go, you know, <laughs> when Infinity War came out, like, just that sort of yeah. thing. But yeah, it would, it, it would definitely be really cool yeah. to see that kind of, that kind of release, um, tried again you know in, in the modern era because you're right like it really isn't done that often you know and certainly not 
in recent memory. Yeah, and with again like you said, social media. I think with memes and all that, it's very hard to keep spoilers off the internet and it's really hard to not have spoilers. I remember me and two of my friends were going to see I think it was in Infinity or in game, one or two, but like a week after the release, and we cut off any communication with anybody. We cut ourselves off from social media mm-hmm. for a week. We didn't even look at our phones because it's almost impossible now this age to go in and not see a spoiler of film. Yeah, I remember like whenever new Star Wars stuff comes out, I just like don't look at anybody's story, you know. <laughs> just kind of take that break from social media. You gotta, yeah, yeah. gotta protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Um. So, okay. Um. Uh, if you as a horror movie fan would like to visit the actual filming location. The original Bates Motel set, which is the exterior of both the house and the motel. You can go to Universal Studios in Los Angeles, California, and on the back lot tour, you have the opportunity to go see the actual filming location. And though Corona cancelled any plans. Usually for the Halloween season, Universal likes to have a haunt maze centered around the set. So if you are a really big film like nerd or just love this movie, we do have the opportunity to go see the set, which I think is really, really cool. And I would love to do that one day. It actually is really cool. I didn't even know that was that was a thing. That's awesome. We should have gotten like we should have gotten like two tickets to yeah. that as a giveaway for this episode. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll Universal sponsor. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if you if you want, you can also look up on YouTube Universal Backlot. Tour, and so this is a tour where they take you on, like I said, the back a lot of the studios where they have old film props, old sets. Sometimes they have current sets and props from current movies getting filmed. But if you're ever at Universal, I highly recommend. And if you can't. Fly out to California, YouTube will do. <laughs> um, so, another really interesting fact is that Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel for just $9,500 and he bought the rights anonymously so that he could keep all details about the film on your app and can keep that suspense of what's going to happen, who's 
got the right who's in part of this film. But I think that's a really cool fact to mention. Yeah, and d- building even more off what we were talking about earlier with him kind of covering up the plot details, I, w- I remember I was reading up um, on the film in preparation for this episode, and I was reading that he even kept the ending uh, secret from his actors, you know, even the people that were literally in the movie and working on the movie as well, um, didn't even know the ending until they were ready to film those scenes. So like, he was definitely very <laughs> cautious about word getting out about that. Yeah, and even though we already talked about this, you see that being applied to modern films as well. Again, Avengers, a lot of the actors for those films got fake scripts, fake endings, and fake scenes so that the big crucial plots of the story wouldn't get leaked. For example, um, Tom Holland got a script where, spoiler alert, which I don't think anyone hasn't seen the movie yet, but in Endgame, for Tony Stark's funeral, Tom Holland's script said that it was actually a wedding. So he showed up to set like, hey, we're ready to film your wedding. And that's when he found out the ending of the movie. So I think it's cool to see how a lot of directors are still doing the same thing where they keep secrets of actors, but even the actors on the, like the show or film don't know quite what's going to happen. Yeah, and it makes sense that they did it for Tom Holland, too, because he's so notorious for always <laughs> letting slip spoilers and stuff in <laughs> interviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, is there anything else you like to bring up about the film or anything you thought particularly out about the film. Yeah, I mean, um, going off of, you know, directors, modern directors today still using techniques um, that, you know, the classics, like the classic directors like Hitchcock used all the way back then. Um, I did want to mention, uh, we mentioned how it influenced Halloween, but it also, um, the film Parasite from last year that uh, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and then also mm. won the Best Picture Oscar and also a ton of other Oscars um, last yeah. year. It was a, a huge, a huge surprise, like kind of smash hit in the U.S. Here, um, that actually also has a lot of parallels to Psycho as well. Um, the director Bong Joon Ho was talking about how um, the house, you know, that we were just talking about that was used in Psycho inspired him when he was designing the house of the rich family in Parasite and how it also has like a secret basement where like a lot of crazy stuff happens, and then also. Parasite makes use of that um, sudden like shift right in the middle of a film where like you think the story is one thing going in one direction and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like bam you know and then it just gets like so crazy in the second half so mm-hmm. you know and now we're, we're talking about a movie that came out like five six decades after Psycho was originally released and it's it's still being influenced by that you know like that's just how how much of a benchmark I feel like Psycho is in the history of film overall. Yeah, it really is. And like you say, almost five decades later and it's still 
impacting the way writers and directors think about the film and think about the production, which I think, needless to say, shows just how big of an impact that film made, not just on the culture of films, but the way that many filmmakers and scriptwriters look at what they do. For sure. I mean, they say, you know, you don't really need to go to film school. You just need to watch a lot of films. And like one of those directors that like everyone can learn from that, like is like absolutely required, um, required watching is definitely Hitchcock. Like he is just so he was so innovative for his time. So forward thinking. And again, like the techniques he used back then are still effective on audiences to this day. So everyone definitely, definitely studies him for sure. Yeah, so that's all I have. So unless you want to add anything, we will wrap this up. I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, we went through what the film's about, like what made it so good and, you know, the effect it has to this day. So, yeah, if anyone anyone listening has yet to see Psycho, it's definitely highly recommended. I'm pretty sure you could probably find it on Amazon Prime or maybe some streaming service out there. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, for those of you listening who don't know Tyler, where can they find you on my socials? All right. Well, you can follow me on Instagram um, at tpain, I-G-T-P-A-Y-N-E-I-G. And then my Snapchat is tpainsc. Yeah, I guess that's it, really. I do have a YouTube channel, actually, where um, I have some of my own films that I've made up on there. It's just Tyler Payne. So if you just type that in, you can find me. Um, Yeah. All right. And speaking of, I know I had the great privilege of working with you on Lovely Project. Is there anything that people can expect to come from you soon? either on youtube or in any other yeah so i am currently working on um another short film that's coming up um currently i'm at college out of state so it's kind of been halted a bit uh but as soon as i get back from my thanksgiving and winter break um we're definitely going to resume production on that and hopefully aim for a release by december 2020 or january 2021 at the latest and yes, Christian does have a role in it, and it's a very important role. <laughs> so, so yeah, definitely keep your eyes out for that. I would greatly appreciate um, if you guys could check that out. Yeah, please feel free to check out Tyler and all Pip's work. Um, come back next week where we will be talking about the movie Scream. And I hope all of you have a good spooky season. Thank you so much, Tyler. For Thank you so much on. for having me. It was awesome. I had a ton of fun. It's been a great episode. I had a great time talking with you. Yeah, I had a great time as well. And I definitely hope to uh, make an appearance on future episodes with talking about stuff. Oh, yes, I hope you come back. I'll see you guys. Bye.